The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. Um, so this morning, um, and by the way, Lewis is real happy. I woke up this morning to a very sad penalty shootout. I'm, I'm half Russian. Uh, Russia got done this morning. Very sad, but that's okay. At least we won't get accused of rigging the World Cup anymore. So, I've been getting it all week. Um, <clears throat> hey? Yeah, we'll see. Maybe. Maybe. So... If you're visiting this morning, we are kind of halfway through a series on the book of Hebrews called Better Than. And the reason it's called Better Than is because the book goes through all these contrasts and says at the end of each of them, Jesus is better than this, better than that. This morning, we sort of move into a new phase of the book where it talks about the priesthood that Jesus has established and how much better it is than the old one. So this covers like four chapters. I'm going to look at one today, chapter 7. And this is all about a very strange character called Melchizedek. Now, this guy, we're going to talk about him in a moment. And the, the Hebrews writer says, the priesthood that you've known, the Levitical priesthood, Aaron, you know, high priest, Yom Kippur, all this sort of stuff, this is no good anymore. This is obsolete now because of Jesus. And I guess the question that the Hebrews would have been asking, and we would even ask reading this today, well, why? Why is the priesthood, why is there another priesthood that's necessary? Why couldn't the Levites provide for our salvation? Why couldn't all this that got established through Moses, why is this not good enough anymore? And so this morning, as we look at this whole area, we're going to step back in time. We're going to have a look at just what was going on with this strange guy, Melchizedek. And then obviously we'll look forward to the plan that God has for eternity. This is the plan that God has for his priesthood. So, Like the rest of this series, these are massive readings. We're not going to do the whole thing. But I do want to turn your attention to the first three verses. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 7. And we're just going to read verses 1 to 3 for the moment. And we'll probably jump in between a few here and there. All right, so it says here, Actually, just at the back of verse 20, let's just start there. It enters, that is the anchor for our soul, the anchor of our hope, enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And then chapter 7 goes on. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Church, shall we pray? Father, this morning we ask that you would illuminate your word to us, Lord. Father, like, a, like a, a, an airport at night, a runway with those lights lit up, Lord, as the plane comes in. This morning I pray, Lord, you would light the way for us. I pray that we would get illumination from this, Lord, seemingly rather strange encounter, Lord God. But there's, there's clearly much that we have to learn from it, God. Would you illuminate your son 
in this service this, this morning, Lord God. We want to see Jesus through your word. God, I just pray that you would grant us an open heaven in this place, Lord. For your glory, Jesus, for your fame, for your renown, we seek this. In your precious name, amen. So, Melchizedek, try saying that three times really fast. Who is this guy, Melchizedek? As I was thinking about this, he has a very, very minor role on the surface. He started out in Genesis with three verses, three verses about this dude. It's kind of like when you watch your favorite TV show. Say you like a crime show or an action show, and you sit there thinking, who done it? Who is it? And you go, they go through all these people that meet the detectives, and, and you know, by the end of it, it's some obscure person. You've got no idea what the connection was. Uh, I was thinking about this. Any uh, Lord of the Rings fans in the place this morning? Oh, this is disappointing. Okay. I was hoping there'd be more, but that's okay. There's, I knew you would. There's a, there's a princess in there called Eowyn, and she just seems like your run-of-the-mill princess. But as the story goes, and she's sort of in the background a bit, she ends up sneaking out into the final battle, and she faces off with the arch enemy, the witch king, I think he's called. And there's an ancient prophecy that no man can kill this guy. And she famously says, I am no man. And she slays him. This minor character who's got a major, major role in this story. Another movie I was thinking of was Love, actually. Anyone seen that? No? Okay. The boys are not admitting to that. Um, Rowan Atkinson, who you know from Mr. Bean, has got this tiny but very crucial role. And if you remember the story, there's a little boy, Daniel, who's desperate to proclaim his love to Joanna before she gets on the plane. And Rowan Atkinson bumbles about at the gate, so much so that Daniel races through past security, and he's able to do what he does. Minor characters with major pivotal roles. That's kind of like what Melchizedek has done here. This encounter in Genesis would stay back in Genesis except for one thing. A thousand years later, a guy called David writes a psalm about Jesus. And he says this, he says, You are a priest forever, that's Jesus, in the order of Melchizedek. This guy who has three verses devoted to him in Genesis. And our author in Hebrews writes a whole sermon about this. And that's sort of what we're unpacking this morning. So... Who is this guy? Who is this Melchizedek? Well, the first thing we see is that he is a king and he's a priest in the one person. Now, if you know your Bible, especially in the Old Testament, you know that's a little weird because we know that the order was the Levites governed the priesthood and it was the tribe of Judah that the kings came from. And yet here's this guy, Melchizedek, who not only represents men before God, but he rules over men as well. He's the king and the priest in the one person. It's very strange. It's very unusual. But maybe you sort of think, yeah, okay, well, I can start to see. There's a bit of, this is the order that we're talking about, the order of Melchizedek. The second thing, not just king and priest, but his name is important as well. His name means something very, very interesting. Melchizedek, we read there in verse 2, it says, the name of Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Hello, king of righteousness. And then it goes on to say that the title king of Salem, Salem uh, meaning Jerusalem, means shalom. It means peace. So he's not just king of righteousness, he's king of peace. 
Now, he's not the ultimate one. He's a forerunner to Jesus in that sense. But this is, this is no accident. And you know, righteousness and peace are paired together so often in the Bible. Isn't it true? We don't know peace with God unless we are righteous before God. And it's all through in the Psalms. James even talks about it. When I was dating Cheryl, uh, my in-laws had a plaque in their house and I used to bust it all the time. And it said, uh, Isaiah 32, the fruit of righteousness is peace and the effect of righteousness is quietness and confidence forever. I've always remembered that. And it just goes without saying, if we have righteousness, we are going to be people confident in our God. We're going to be people who are at peace, even when the world is giving way. That's, they, they go together. And this man, we're told, has this title, has this name. Thirdly, he is a man without genealogy. Now, this is particularly interesting. Verse 3, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life. Now, if you read that in isolation, that would get you thinking, is this guy even human? But it says resembling the Son of God, okay? We're not saying he is God. We're not saying he's an angel. He's a human. But there's no record of who he is. Why is this interesting? You think about Genesis and all the books of the Bible, genealogy after genealogy. Every, there's, you might think this is an illiterate time. No, no, no. This book is full of genealogies. There's a full record here. All the way back to Adam. All the way back to Adam. We've got record after record. But this guy just kind of appears out of nowhere. There's no record of his parents. There's no record of his children. There's no record what he did after him in Abraham. We have no idea. We just don't know. But we know, the little that we do know is that what, this, what the, the, the writer is essentially saying is this. He has no one to succeed him. He has no one before him. Now, the Levites, just to back up a minute, the Jews took a lot of pride in their ancestry. And let's be honest, we do too. I mean, how many people do you mean? I'm a seventh generation Australian. How many people do you mean? I, I joke about that because I'm not, but... But how, how often? Or, uh, you know, I, I was related to, I don't know, the Chinese royal empire or something. My dad used to work with a guy who was the king of Tokelau. I'd never heard of Tokelau until this. <laughs> I'm wondering if it's bogus, but anyway, let's not go there. Um, we're proud of our genealogy. We're proud of our ancestry. And the, the priests, they had to prove who they were. Melchizedek can't do that. But it doesn't matter. He is king and priest. It's not important. It was a source of pride for these people. But when we're learning here about this genealogy thing and he's got no genealogy, it's kind of like the writer is giving them, the Jews a bit of a slap here, a bit of a WWE smackdown. It's kind of like the ancestry doesn't matter. The ancestry is not important. This guy, God has appointed. It wasn't the best view. Sorry about that. <laughs> that was an accident. No genealogy. We'll go to the next one. Fourthly, He's a man of such honor that he receives tithe and he issues blessing. Now, this, there's, so there's like six verses on this. We know that the Levites collected the tithe. We know that the priests, this was their funding. This was how the rest of Israel kept the Levites going. They didn't go to work. They didn't go to war. This was what they did. They collected the tithe. But this guy, Melchizedek, receives a tithe from Abraham. Abraham, who's like the guy, right? Jewish, just think Jewish mindset. He is the guy as far as they're concerned. And yet he says, no, this guy's greater than me. This guy's more important than me. And 
remember I said about the ancestry just a second ago? What they also translate that to mean is by Abraham doing this, therefore the whole Levite priesthood has done this as well. Now that's, that spins me out because that's them saying, hey, this, this priesthood's better than ours. This priesthood is more honored than ours. This is a big deal. Don't lose sight of that. This is a huge, huge deal. And then on top of the tithe, Melchizedek reverses and he blesses. He gives him a blessing. We read that in Genesis. I was thinking about this. Is anybody familiar with the term manapo? All the Filipinos say yes. For those, for those who are not Filipino, it's a blessing that the, if you're a junior, you go to someone who's older and you'll grab their hand and you'll, you'll do this to your head. And it's like, bless me. And the, the responsibility is on the senior to bless the one who's, who's offering the respect. By the way, I was talking to Jared last night and he said, sometimes it's also a request for money from the... <laughs> I've got to try that one maybe. Um, but the, the, the lesser is always the one who honours the greater. And the greater is the one who blesses the lesser. Do you see what's going on here? So Melchizedek is higher than Abraham. He's higher than the Levite priesthood. He's more important. And again, this is a slap to the sort of whole Jewish mindset of, you know, the priesthood and the the pomp and the ceremony. No, no, this is greater than that. This is bigger than that. And this is why the Messiah had to come from this order. This is why Jesus had to come from here. Now, these verses obviously telling us he's a unique priest, one who ruled as well as was representing people before God. And in several ways, he's pointing to Jesus. But you might then ask, well, that's, that's well and good, but what is it that makes the Levitical priesthood temporary? I kind of get it, but, but, but why, why even do it? Like, what, what's it there for? Why was it needed? Why was a superior priesthood needed? Well, the author is pointing out this was necessary for a time before Jesus, but he's, he's at pains to point out, guys, this will do you no good. This will do you no good to cling to this Levitical order. It's like superseded technology. And I don't mean from one smartphone to the next or one car to the next. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking the difference between like an old, old school camera. Some of the younger guys are like, what in the world is that? That's how we used to take photos, okay? Don't laugh. Um, versus, you know, digital camera, phone, whatever you use nowadays. It's, it's like there's no point going back to that, guys. This is the old order of things. Forget it. Put it behind you. There's a new way. There's a better way. There's a better way of doing this. It's no longer the order of Aaron that's to be our concern, but the order of Melchizedek, this priest king. Now, why is that? Why is that? And, and what do we learn from this? Well, there's a clue here. The words perfect and perfection give us a bit of a clue in this reading here. It's used three times in this chapter, and it talks about completion, talks about absolute, talks about fulfillment, the totality. And what it says, listen to this, it says in verse 11, it says, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, why was there still a need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron. So in other words, this thing had to be incomplete. Otherwise, there's no need for someone else. There's no need for a Melchizedek. There's no need for even a Jesus, really, if this was enough to cleanse us from our sin. But the fact is, it was not. They could not. These priests, by their ministry, had no power to forgive your individual sin. They had no power. All they did 
was a outside cleansing, an exterior, a ceremonial, you know, I cover the nation kind of thing. There was no internal change. There was no internal transformation. There was no, God could forgive his people, but there really wasn't much of an avenue for relationship with God. I mean, you think about it in your own life. When someone does something wrong to you, say it's a friend or a family member, you can forgive them, but that's not where it ends, right? You want to restore relationship with that person. You're not, it's not just they're saying, yeah, I forgive you, but you know, I won't forget. That's not the way it's meant to be. And that is not the heart of God. God's heart is to forgive us and to move on and to have a relationship with us. Unfortunately, this was next to impossible under the old system. Very few had access to God this way. Very few people could connect to God. It was appropriate at the time because there was no Jesus on the scene yet. But there was no transformation for God's people. The the next uh, verse where it mentions perfect is in verse 18. It talks about how the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, because the law made nothing perfect. The law made nothing perfect. Here is the first of two reasons. The priests could not save because the law could not save. The law was powerless. The law doesn't do anything but tell me what, what I've done wrong. It's like when you drive on the highway and you see a speed sign and you're going 10 over. It doesn't, it doesn't help me. It just tells me I'm going 10 over. And I feel guilty. I think, is there a policeman nearby? You slow it down. It doesn't help. It's just, it's like a mirror. It just tells you you're wrong, but that's it. That's all it does. We read in in Galatians that the Mosaic law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Jesus or custodian or guardian or in today's lingo, like your bus driver. It was your bus driver to bring you to Jesus. It doesn't help you ultimately, but it takes you to the one who does. It takes you to the place where you will get help. The law wasn't wrong. It was just powerless. And by the way, it leaves you and me powerless as well. It leaves us unable to do anything about our sin. It's the first reason the law cannot save. The second reason is in verse 23. There had been many of these priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. The second reason, not just that the law was unable to save, but that these are humans. These are people. These are people who had probably the right intentions at times, not always. If you read the history of Israel, a lot of corruption happened. That's just that's what you deal with when you deal with people. But they were sinners themselves. They had no ability to save. They had no ability to clean your conscience. As I mentioned, just one offering that covers Israel. That's it, once a year. And, and day to day, they were offering sacrifices for themselves. I said this the other week too, that you know Moses was like a sheep leading the sheep. These guys were no different. They were like Sean the sheep, a leader from among the people who still needed saving at the end of the day. The priests were there simply based on their ancestry. Hey, I'm a Levite. Look at me. I'll be the high priest. But that's it. It's just, there's nothing. There's no supernatural ability. And we know the priesthood was not immune from corruption. We know that. You only have to look at guys like Eli, whose sons were so rebellious. And God finally said, you know, they've eaten the consecrated meat and all these different things. And eventually it's like, they're going to die same day, the pair of them. And then uh, the Bible doesn't so much tell us this as history does. In the years leading up to Jesus, the priests got more and more and more corrupt. It just got so bad. 
And so therefore, the writer is saying, guys, it's done for. It's obsolete. There's a better way. We see that the priesthood had run its course. There was no benefit to God's people anymore. And even under the old covenant, it was limited. It was just a covering for the nation for that time. There wasn't that individual transformation of heart, which God wants for his people. But despite all this, persecution comes and other obstacles are facing these guys. We know that the Hebrew Christians were tempted to return to the old ways, including the priesthood. And the author is at pains to say, hey, guys, it's done for, it's done for, but they still want to go back. Now, I know some of you are sitting there thinking the priesthood, Andrew, this is 2018, is this really that relevant? The priesthood itself might not be too relevant to you, but here's the problem. The default setting in our heads, you know, you have a phone or a computer, you've got default settings, right? We have a default setting. And the problem is that is legalism. Our default setting is to go back to keeping rules and regulations. Our heart system, we may not have a priesthood of sorts in that respect. We form our own Levitical laws. We form our own way of doing this, our own religious externalism. So it's just as relevant for you and me, church. We need a priest. We need a high priest every bit as much as the Hebrews did. How could they be sure then? How can we be sure now? that Jesus is the priest we require then. How do we know? What is it about Jesus' priesthood that makes him sufficient? Well, church, this chapter closes by building this incredible case for Jesus, that he truly is the priest that we need. Line by line, it's like, have you ever watched a time lapse of a house being built? So cool. They start, you know, digging the ground, there's foundations, there's a slab, there's frames, there's bricks. It's so cool. That's kind of like what this is like. We see the argument go, and then the next one builds, and the next one, it keeps building and building and building until it's an impregnable case for Jesus. And I hope I do this justice. If you get nothing else from what I say, I want you to remember this next statement. The transforming salvation that God wants for each and every one of us requires a transforming priest. The Levitical priesthood did not have that power, but the salvation that changes our hearts required an eternal powerful, death-conquering priest. There's six things that the writer identifies here. So let's go through this real quick. In the order of Melchizedek and why that matters, why that's important. Firstly, verse 16 tells us that rather than relying on ancestry, Jesus is there because of an indestructible life. Because Melchizedek was there, you know, indestructible life, no genealogy, no record of death. No one to succeed, no one to pass it on to. This kingly priest, Jesus now steps into this role. See, Aaron's order was established by, hey, you're in the tribe of Levi, this is what you do. But Jesus' priesthood is established by him not dying. Or let me rephrase that, him dying and rising again and will never die. He is priest forever. He can't be replaced. I was talking to Rachel the other day, my my middle girl, and she goes, Daddy, is there things that God can't do? And I said, yeah, there is. And I love the things he can't do. He can't lie. He can't be contrary to his nature. He can't give up his throne. And he can never not be our high priest. He can never do. It's awesome. It's awesome. He can't change who he is. And just as Melchizedek had no record of his birth or death, Jesus is the complete embodiment of one who has no beginning and no end. We've been singing to him. 
We've been praying to him. It is a permanent priesthood. <clears throat> Number two, building on that then, God swears an oath. God makes a promise that we talked about from Psalm 110. God promises that this is, he says, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest, Jesus. You are a priest in this order. You, in other words, you will be a king. You will be a priest. You will represent people before me. You will be Lord over them. This is the high priest we're serving. This is the God that we serve. And by the way, that, that psalm starts off by saying that God will make his enemies a footstool for his feet. He will reign over everything. There's nothing that will not be subject to Jesus. Not a single thing. The ever-living Christ has been promised from God. And again, while all these other priests are reliant on their ancestry, Jesus doesn't need that. He doesn't need that. He's got God promising him. Now, I don't know about you, but the word of God is pretty trustworthy, I think. This is the word that he uses to sustain the universe. This is the word that just cannot return void. This is what God has promised, appointed by his Father's very word. But then he goes on, he builds again. He is the guarantor of a better covenant. He is the guarantor. He is the one who's the security. We know this term. It's a financial term. Down payment, deposit. In the Bible, we see this in, in uh, Judah, where Benjamin, Joseph was going to keep Benjamin back. And Judah says, listen, I, you're going to kill his father. I'll stay back. I'll be your deposit. We'll get them back. I will do it. It's a bit like, in our terms, it's a bit like having a mortgage. Unfortunately, this is a little depressing because the bank takes your house as security. And if you don't pay the loan, they can take it off you. Now, that's, that's too depressing. So let's flip it around the other way. Um, you might lay by something. Now, does anyone know what lay by is? Is that, is that still in vogue? Or are we all credit cards these days? I, I don't know. I remember when I was going to get married, I put a ring on lay by because I only had $20 in my pocket. And so I had to put a down payment I had to put a down payment. It was a promise that the rest was going to be fulfilled. And this is what he's saying. Jesus is the down payment. He is the promise. There's a better covenant. There's a better future. There's a day that you and I will see him with face unveiled. Bodies that are glorified. I mean, if we went up like this, we'd probably burst at the seams. Who knows what it'd be like when we see him face to face. It'll be incredible. He's the guarantor of a better covenant. And then it goes on. He saves completely. Or if you've got a King James, he saves to the uttermost. This word means it's, it's complete. It's almost like double complete. Completely complete. Finishedly finished, if that makes sense. There's, there's no turning around from this. There's no recourse. There's no chance this will get turned away. There isn't an aspect of your salvation, there isn't an aspect of your walk with God that he can't bring to completion. He who began a work in you will fulfill it. He will see it through to the end. That's what this is saying. He can save completely to the very uttermost, and he does, and he's done it in you and me, church. He's done it in our lives. And then, not only that he saves to the uttermost, but he ever lives to intercede for you and for me. Do you know he's praying? He is, he is pleading for us. Now, when I say that, that makes God sound like a despot. That's not what I'm saying. Because Father and, and Jesus, they are one on this. They are one on... He, he, he doesn't have an unmerciful Father to plead for us. That's not what it's saying. But what it's saying is we're His. 
and he loves us. He doesn't, he doesn't take delight when you sin, but nor does he hit you over the head with a, with a hammer just because you get it wrong. He's pleading for you. He's, he's you know, leading you on to keep going. <clears throat> I'm probably going to show my age now, but when I was growing up, there was a band in the late 90s called Sonic Flood. Does anybody remember them? I am really showing my age now. Okay. Hey, listen, before United was cool, there was these guys, all right? They had this song, uh, which was an old hymn called Before the Throne of God Above. I don't know if you've heard of it. Amazing lines. It comes from this very passage. It says, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives to plead for me. And then it continues on. My name is written on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while ever in heaven he stands, no tongue, no tongue can bid me to depart. Church, if he is pleading for you, if he is in heaven with the Father right now, the devil can't throw anything at you. It doesn't change anything in terms of your standing with him. Yes, life can get tough. Yes, life is hard. I believe me, I, I know, we, we've all walked this. But there's nothing that the enemy can throw at you because he is pleading your case. He is there with the Father saying, he's mine, he's mine, she's mine. This is what he does. Our names are on his hands. This is our God. This is our high priest, our king. And then finally, he goes on to say that he is holy and blameless. For such a high priest, he goes on to say, if such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners in verse 26. See, he meets our needs completely. Some priests abuse their position. Some of the Levites, they just, and by the way, some of the people from Judah abuse their position as well. There's records of kings like Uzziah who wanted to be both king and priest, and that was a no-no. But see, Jesus perfectly ministers to us. Jesus perfectly leads us. He's the only one who can claim to be blameless. He's the only one that can claim holiness. He doesn't, because it's not about what's in here. He, he's God. He is God. He's not someone trying to get right with God. He's not Sean the sheep trying to lead his people. He is the true shepherd. He is the true priest. And see, church, while the priests day by day did their ritual cleansing and washing and, you know, finding a spotless lamb, Jesus didn't have to do that. He's not just the priest. He's the sacrifice. He didn't need a spotless lamb. He gave himself. He's our unchanging priest, not a sacrifice every day or every year on the Day of Atonement. No, no, no. Once for all. One sacrifice for our sins and it's settled in heaven forever. Your salvation is not dependent on the conduct of the priest or whether the spotless lamb was spotless enough. No. Your salvation is secure because your priest is perfect. Your king is perfect. The sacrifice was enough. Church, this is the unchanging priest. This is the one who came in the order of Melchizedek. This is the one, the transforming power that was needed in our souls could only be brought about by a transforming priest. It could only be brought about by one who truly can forgive our sin. And his name is Jesus. 
an unchanging priest, an unchanging priesthood should give us an unwavering confidence. So as we close this meeting this morning, you might be coming wondering, and I know it's been a, a, a lot to take in, but you might be thinking, well, yeah, life is really sucking right now. Life is really hard right now. And I hear you, I hear you. But this isn't your end. This isn't where it finishes because Jesus is gonna carry you. This is eternity. He has secured for you by His sacrifice, by His going into the Holy of Holies in heaven, by the way, not here. He's in the very presence of God and He pleads for us. I don't know about you, but when I see that, that makes me realize this life is not that important. My battles that I face, God has done enough to overcome. He is my guarantee of a better day. He is my guarantee of a better covenant. And so church, this morning as we, we're going to sing in a moment, I just want you to just reflect on that. Let's just thank Him that He is the high priest that we could never, no human could ever amount to. Not even Melchizedek himself. He is Jesus. He is the reason we can draw near to God with confidence. He is the reason we can approach the throne of grace. It's not because of some ceremonial act. It's because of the love of God. The perfect, holy, blameless, spotless lamb who is our sacrifice, who is our priest, who is our king, who is our everything. Father, this morning, we just thank you for your son. We just thank you for this great high priest who, Lord, broke the order of the Levitical priesthood, who broke the, the, the regulations that were there because you wanted relationship with us, because you wanted to give us a chance to be transformed. You wanted to give us a chance to give you the glory you deserve. Lord, we pray this morning that we would just... Lord, we would, we would really appreciate and love and thank you, Lord, for all that you have done again, Lord. Lord, make your gift more real to us again. Your sacrifice. You as our priest, as our, our, our plea, our perfect plea before heaven, Lord. We thank you for your goodness, Lord. Lord, this morning, I just ask that we would walk away with confidence, Lord, in our perfect high priest. would walk away in confidence knowing our King will not let us down. Knowing that no matter what the circumstances are, you've got us in your hand. You're holding our lives. Lord, I ask this would not just be a, a technical learning of things. God, let this sink into our hearts, Lord God. You are the eternal priest. You are the eternal king. You are all that we need. Jesus, we give you praise in your precious name.